right now, James chapter 1, starting at sentence 1 through to 18, joy in trials. James 1.1. 1, 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must suppose, not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we would be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. This is the word of God. Well, it's good to have you here today. My name's Gav. I'm one of the pastors. I feel like if my name's not Graham Edwards, the church doesn't turn up. Anyway, what is, what is wrong with that? Um, but I'm, I'm Gav, not Graham. So anyway, I'm glad, glad you could be here today to enjoy the sermon. Um, I just want to say how amazing uh, Wednesday night was, our prayer and praise night if you were here. A big thank you to, to Chris and to Cam um, for all the work you guys put in for that. It was a massive blessing to all the musos who also um, served us. It was personally a huge blessing to my soul. I remember standing at the back of the night and just looking over the church and uh, there was only 80 or so of us here and uh, I was cool hearing how God was at work in people's lives as well and I, I, I honestly had this thought that um, how much I love the church here and a privilege it is to, for God to allow me to lead and to love and to serve this church. I'm super encouraged by you guys. I want to say thank you for that and uh, I'm, I'm excited for the season ahead. And one of the greatest joys on the night was actually, um, I had all my kids there, they were all there, and uh, we sung Psalm 18, which is their favourite their favorite worship track that we sing at home together. And it was cool, I think I had, I had one of my daughters in my arms, had my other daughter next to me, and Jet was next to them, and we're all singing together praises to God. And it was a, a joy for my soul to sing praises to our God together as a family. And I long for my kids to know Jesus, so that was a cool blessing from the night as well. Uh, and my hope is that uh, as, we, as our experience on, on the prayer, prayer and praise night would be, that would be our experience every Sunday when we gather, that people get excited to sing and praise God together. So we want to make that happen. Uh, as Jez mentioned, we kick off a 10-week series today uh, looking at the book of James, 10 weeks walking through the book of, of James from beginning to end, seeing what it has to say to us. 
Um, but before we jump into this, um, I'm convinced uh, when we open the Bible, when it's taught and when it's read, uh, that God speaks, so we encounter Him. And so today, I believe He's going to speak again to us, and the question we've got to ask ourselves to become here is, are we going to listen? Are we going to hear Him speak? Are we going to pay attention? And so this, this, this today up here is not about me and my words and my craftiness or my illustrations or whatever it is. It's actually the sitting before our Creator God and listening to Him speak. And so I just want to give you time now in your own soul just to spend a minute or so praying for you, for yourself, because you know what you need to hear more than I do, and that you will get your hearts ready to hear from your Creator God. So let me give you a minute now to pray for yourself, and then I'll pray. Heavenly Father, you are, you are so good to us. Uh, you are a distant God who, who sits back and just lets the world happen. You are intimate, you are near, you work in and through us, your church and your people. And you don't remain silent, but you speak. And you speak through your word powerfully. And we want to pray, Lord, as we come now uh, to, to hear you speak, that we would um, still ourselves and still our soul to sit and listen at your feet. We want to be like Mary who sits at your feet and just listens. Lord, you say in, your, in, your, in the Psalm 19 that your word is sweeter than honey. It revives our soul. We want to believe that today and hear you address our hearts and minds. We want to pray that you would just calm our busy minds, our busy hearts, maybe our worried hearts, our worried minds, our anxious thoughts, whatever they are. I want to pray that we will just sit at your feet and listen to our King. We know you have a word to say to us today. And so, Lord, we want to pray that we would hear that. Use me as your servant. Lord, help this not to be about, about uh, my sermon or my words, but actually your words. Just speak through me and help me get out of the way so we can just see you. We want to see more of you today, Lord, we ask. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, at the end of last year, my family and I went to um, the carols in the domain, the dress rehearsal part, though. That's way better. Let me just tell you right now. Let's, you're just shocked by that word, you're <laughs> Dress rehearsal. Less crowds, easy to get to. Anyway, there's a tip for you. Dress rehearsal, way better. Anyway. Um, and a few of the families from the local school were going, that my kids go to, so we went together. And a couple of dads were going. I never met, I hadn't met a few of them, but I met one. And uh, so I was thinking in my head, I'm going to spend four hours with these dads. I need to know some of the things they're into so I can at least chat to them. Because it's awkward when you chat to a dad. They're not often that chatty. And so you stand there and say, what are you for a job? What are you do for a job? And then conversation's done. You stand there just nodding your head and like, I've got four hours of this. So I thought, I need to get ahead of this. I need to work out some conversation starters. So I said to Katie, um, uh, do you know anything about these dads? And she said, oh, one dad is really into sport. And I thought, great, that's my jam. I can do this all night, sport, great. And then she said, oh, I think your sport is those horse racing. I'm like, oh, horse racing? Is that even a sport? 
It's like making horses run so you can bet on them. Is that, that's basically it. So anyway, we're driving to the domain. And in my head, I'm trying to go through the catalogue of sport in my head. Horse racing, horse racing. What do I know about this horse racing? And then I think, I know a horse called Winx. It's pretty good. And hasn't been, and hasn't been beaten. That's all I know. Winx hasn't been beaten. Great. I'll roll with that. Anyway, that's, that's about the much noises I had on horse racing. So we get to the domain. We see all these families. And we say hi to them and whatever. And then half through the night, I see the dad... And I go and chat to him, and I start the conversation, but I tried to have a conversation without playing the horse racing car just yet. <laughs> I, wanted, I wanted to hold that back a little bit, just because I'm going to play it too early. If you play that too early and it goes nowhere, then I'm jammed for the rest of the night. So it's about the timing of playing that card. So I held that back, and then eventually the conversation wasn't flowing. I was like, what's you for a job? He'd just give me one word answers. How is it? Good. That's all I got. I was, it was really, I was working hard, and uh, he was not giving me much at all. So then I said to him, hey, are you a fan of horse racing? And he's lit up, like, whoa, you know, finally you asked me the question. And, uh, and then he says to me, do you follow horse racing? And I said, oh, I follow Winx. You know, it's, it's... <laughs> I said, oh, yeah, and she's had a phenomenal run and, you know, pretending I know more. And I was done. That's all I knew. I had given him all my knowledge in one sentence, finished. Horse racing. I was out. So what did I do? I just basically asked him 100 questions about Winx for the rest of the night. Why is she so good? When's her next race? Wish her in the Melbourne Cup? Why will she? Why won't she? And on I went, right? Just pretending that I knew a lot about horse racing and I had no idea. I was not a follower of horse racing at all. Lucky he didn't ask me any questions because I had, I had nothing. I was pretending to be a follower. And I'm sure you've met people who have bluffed their way through, through, through things before. Followers of, you know, sports teams that are winning, people dropping the bandwagon, or followers of, uh, of, of a band or who have never been to a concert or their songs. You know, not real followers, but, but, but pretenders. Uh, and it's ultimately shown their pretenders by what they say, how they live, and what they are like. You know, I wonder what you think about when you hear the word follower of Jesus. What does that mean? And what does a real follower of Jesus look like? How much should being a follower of Jesus affect your life, like how we live, what you do, how you act, and how much of your life should be affected by Jesus, if you follow him. And what areas of your life, like, you know, to say, so should it affect like 80% of your life, 90% of your life, 95% of your life? And what areas should you, uh, is Jesus Lord over? Um, are there some areas that's a no-go zone for him, where this, you say, this far no further Jesus, or, or, or no, this is mine and this is yours? What does it look like? be a follower of Jesus. I want to say the question the book of James is going to answer is that question exactly. What does it mean and look like in reality, in practice, to be a follower of Jesus? What does a real faith look like? A genuine faith look like? And if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, I think this book is going to challenge you on how we to live. James will hit a bunch of different topics and really get quite practical about the Christian life. And the aim of James as he writes this book is that, we, that his readers would serve Jesus more wholeheartedly and more radically. And I think this book, as we read it, will make us feel uncomfortable. But also help us to think about what it looks like to truly live out your faith. And today we're going to jump right into chapter 1, as Jez just read for us just then. And James comes flying out of the blocks, a real brief introduction, and then he goes straight at the first topic. And the question is that he's going to hit is, what, is it to look, what does it look like for a follower of Jesus to live in a world of suffering, a world of trials? He goes right at the top straight away. He doesn't ease into it. He goes straight at this question. 
And maybe, maybe this is a question that you are wrestling with at the moment, that you are asking. I'm guessing that most of us in some part of life will ask this question for ourselves at some point. You know, trouble at work, trouble in relationships, trouble in the family, trouble in marriage, loneliness, mental illness, sickness, mourning, alienation, addiction, mistreatment, financial hardship. We will all experience this at some point in life. What do we do? How does a faith in Jesus affect trials and suffering in life? This is the question that James is going to try and answer today at the beginning of his book. Before we go any further, um, I, want to be, I want to be honest with you. Not that I'm not always, but you know, I'm <laughs> too honest sometimes. Anyway, uh, let me be honest with you. Earlier this week, I, I got this passage to, to preach on. And, uh, and, I, and I've got to say that I found it really hard to connect with. And I was sharing this with Cam the other day. As, as we're going to see, it says at the start, it says, consider trials pure joy or joy. Now, I read this, and to be honest, I was put off by this. Consider trials in life as joy. Now, I know that uh, people here at City Light, and I know them well, and know that some people here are going through some really hard things. I know that they've been through, and people have been through really hard seasons of life, and I know the pain that some are, some are in. And I want to say that my year has been hard with the loss of my mum and all the effects that that has had on my family. And so when I read trials, that's joy. I'm like, no thanks. I don't want to talk about that or speak on that. Next passage, please. Or, Jez, you can have this one. And I came here on Wednesday night, feeling a bit flat. And uh, God, as we gathered to pray and to, and, to, and to sing, God reminded me again of his goodness. And then I saw, I saw everyone here, and I was reminded by God that he has called leaders to shepherd and to feed the flock with his word, and that his word is good for all seasons of life. And he revealed, I think as I was sticking up this, he revealed to me that the book of James is not a word from, or not, a, not um, um, communication from a, a God who is mean or angry or distant, but I have to remember, this is a word from a good, loving father who is near, who loves, and who speaks to us in every season of life even when it's hard to hear, even in the midst of trials and suffering. He is not quiet in those seasons. He speaks into those seasons. And so I'm guessing in a room like here today, I'm guessing some of us are suffering and some of us are struggling. And I want to be as sensitive as I can to that, but I also want to show you a word from a good God who loves you deeply and he speaks a comforting word into our lives as we face trials he says that in these trials, through him, we can have a deep abiding joy, no matter what comes our way. I think trials either push us away from God or draw us to him. And my hope and prayer is that as God speaks now, that he will draw you close to him in whatever season you are in, and definitely through the inevitable trials of life. Briefly, before we look at that passage, I just want to give you a bit of context of James. This is the first time we're looking at this book. Let me tell you a bit about uh, who James is, why he's writing, the, the historical context. It's always really important as we come to a new book of the Bible. Um, James is, the book is five chapters long. It is short. It is punchy. It is straight in your face. 
is written by Jesus' half-brother James. Uh, his half-brother, I had to think through, why is a half-brother? And uh, thank you for laughing, yes, I appreciate that. But it's half-brother because Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. That's why it's half-brother. Anyway, you can ponder that later on. Anyway, good, it's half-brother, Jesus, uh, Jesus is James. Um, and it's believed that James would have started following Jesus around the time of Jesus' death and resurrection. So a little later on into his ministry. James was a key leader in the Jewish church in Jerusalem. Uh, This church in Jerusalem would have faced a bunch of hardship, um, a persecution from both the Jewish people and from the Romans as well. So it faced extreme hard times, persecution on a high level. So much so, James was uh, killed for his faith in the end, it's believed. Uh, So he knew trials well. There was also a huge famine that took place around that time of this church, and so it would have sent many into poverty, as well, and hardship, and so this is the context of James's church, which then shapes why he writes these letters in the way he does, this letter in the way he does. Uh, James is obviously influenced by his big brother, Jesus, uh, but especially his teaching, you can see um, Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount come through a lot in this letter, but also uh, the book of Proverbs, a lot of sort of short, pithy, wise sayings come through the book of James as well. Uh, this book is dense. You could probably study one or two sentences for hours. Um, uh, James, but James doesn't muck around. He gets straight to it. Uh, there are church facing hardship. And so James feels like there's no time to waste. Let's just get into it. And so he does. So we're going to look at this. Uh, we're going to look at one, as just read for us, 1, 1 to 18. Uh, here are my three movements to help us navigate where we're going to head to the giver of life, uh, the goal of life, sorry, the giver of wisdom and the gospel perspective. Faith that enables so it should be you. Faith that enables you to face trials with joy, as James 1 says. So James 1 1 says this. As his sort of introduction, as he's writing this letter, he's penning a letter. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. So James is beginning his book and saying, Here, here it is. Um, I'm going to start this letter, he introduces himself, James, and I love how he introduces himself and who he is, and he says there that he is a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. I was thinking about this and thinking, imagine calling your brother the Lord. I just, anyway, I thought it was really weird, right? The Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord. So, but I think this shows something about James and about Jesus, because um, James would have grown up seeing Jesus day by day, would have lived with him. And seen what he was like. And if anyone had any reason not to believe in Jesus, sure it's his family who saw him 24-7. But James sees and knows who Jesus is. He's the Lord. And now he finds himself calling Jesus his Lord. And then he writes to the uh, 12 dispersed or scattered tribes, he says. This is a phrase to describe um, uh, the church of God, God's people, the 12, the 12 tribes. And they are scattered outside of Jerusalem. They've been, they've been pushed out. And so he's writing to the scattered Jewish Christians uh, around uh, the Asia Minor region. And these are all churches that are living in light of the Jesus resurrection. It's a general letter, so it's easy for us to apply it to our situation because we too are people who live in light of the resurrection. It's a very general letter. But he jumps straight into his first topic, and that's trials. Have a look at sentences two to four with me. This is his big point, a big idea here. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers or brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and that steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. He said, Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. And you know, that's, that's, a, that's a strong way to start a book. 
from straight at the gates. But let me try and show you a few things to help understand his main point. You know, firstly, you've got to, as you read this, it's quite a sobering thought from James that he says, consider it um, joy when you, uh, uh, when you meet trials. And it's not if you meet trials, but it's when you meet trials. So James is saying straight here, uh, straight, straight away, that um, sadly, at, all, at some point, all of us in our lives will face trials in this fallen world. Every single one of us. They're not something we, we encourage or we welcome, but it's our reality. It's our reality of living in a fallen world. And so knowing this, James wants to, James wants to write to his readers on how to use trials to grow your faith rather than letting trials destroy your faith. That's what he's trying to do here. Because if we're honest, that's what trials and suffering do. I'm sure you've seen that in your experience with people, that it either grows their faith or knocks their faith out. I think often in trials we can feel, we can feel uh, overwhelmed and wondering if we can keep going and feel alone and isolated and, see if, and, and, and often feel like no one else gets it. And so it's into the situation that James speaks. And his, and his plea is to not let suffering finish you, but rather grow you. And he says this in sentence 12. Blessed is the person or the man who, who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those whom, to whom, he, lo- uh, whom he loves. But to stand firm in these trials. That's his hope. They would stand firm and not give up when hardship comes. Now you might hear that and think, well, stand firm, that, is, that sounds pretty full on and hard to do. I can't do that, I won't do that if trials come or they are in my life at the moment. And James knows this and so he's going to try and walk through how to do this. Just notice from the very beginning, James 1, uh, 1 2, he says, um, count or consider it joy when you meet trials of all kinds. Now he's not trying to tell you how to feel, he's saying how to think, consider, count is his language. The battle starts with trials in the mind. He isn't saying pretend trials are are fun or put on a happy face, but he's challenging us the way to think about trials. He says there's there's a way of thinking about trials that can lead us to seeing trials as joy. And it all has to do when you have the goal in mind, the ultimate goal in mind. And he shows us what the ultimate goal is in sentences 3 and 4. He says, trials teach us steadfastness or perseverance. Trials, uh, trials and suffering put us in a situation where it's not easy to keep going, where we need to dig deep, determination. And as James says, that perseverance and steadfastness leads to the goal, which is maturity, this idea of being complete, lacking nothing. Growing as a follower of Jesus, that's the goal he's talking about. That's the end goal we need to try and attain towards is maturity. To know Jesus more deeply, to have a deeper joy, a deeper hope, to know God more fully and intimately. And James is saying here that these trials give us an opportunity to grow. In fact, the Bible says that the path to maturity is through trials, is through suffering. That is the path to growth. We need to have the goal in mind, he's saying. Recently, I um, have got back on a bit of an exercise kick, and so I've started running again. Now, I hate running. 
I hate, hate, hate running with a passion. I run, my body's like, where are we going? Uh, and can't we just drive? <laughs> like, why do we need to run? Just get the keys, get in the car, and let's get there. Every step, my body's saying, just stop, please. This hurts, ow, 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 ow. The whole time, right? I don't enjoy it at all. But I've recently done the typical running thing and got the, you know, the Strava app that everyone has to do. I got the Strava app as well. And it um, tells me how far I've run, tells me how fast I'm going, every kilometre, all those sort of things. And I try to um, beat my time that I've run yesterday or the day before and get fast every time. And it's like I have this little goal in my head to try and motivate me to go. And I want to get fitter and get healthier as I head towards 40. Yes, I'm 40. I know. Wow, he's 40. No, I am 40. I'm 40, right? <laughs> but uh, I, uh, I, want to f- and, uh, I want to be fit and healthy as I head towards that age. But I also know that after I run, I feel better. I actually feel better. So during the run, uh, I hate it. But what it produces, I love. The sweat and the pain and the hurt is worth it for the goal at the end that I'm driving towards. That's what drives me through the pain and the hatred of running. And James is saying this same thing, endure trials with, a, with, with, with joy going, because we know the goal is going to get closer to God. And we need to remember that goal and the fruit that we produced through a hard season, this perseverance leading towards maturity, he says. You know, I think that faith is like a muscle that needs to be worked. Our faith needs to be pushed, the pushback of trials for us to grow. Paul, the apostle, says something very similar in Romans 5, 3 to 5, look at this on the screen. It says, we rejoice in our sufferings. Similar, similar to what James is saying. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that what? That suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Same idea what James is saying here. Suffering produces an endurance, a perseverance. And perseverance is not comfortable. It's not easy. But it's not wasted because of what God is going to achieve through it. Our trials are not wasted. There is a goal. A goal I think we all long for is a deeper intimacy, a deeper relationship with our Creator, which we're made for. That doesn't mean that trials are not painful, that they don't hurt, that we won't weep, we won't mourn, we won't, we won't, we won't lose. Trials and sufferings are not good things in of themselves. But James is saying what God can accomplish through suffering is the good. Having the goal in mind, a maturity, lacking nothing. Malcolm Muggeridge was, a, uh, was an English journalist who was an atheist at the start of his life and then later on became a follower of Jesus. And he reflected back on his life in his later years about his growth and about life and, his, and, him, uh, and uh, him growing. And look what he says about the Christian life. I'll read it. It says, In my 75 years in this world, everything that has been truly enhanced and enlightened my existence has been through suffering and not through happiness. It's a sobering thought. But it makes sense of what the Bible says. James is not saying that we will automatically experience a joy in our suffering, but rather we are to consider and count trials in this way. And we need to fight hard to force ourselves to think rightly and see the goal of knowing God deeper through our trials. I think knowing the goal helps us to endure trials with joy. 
But in the midst of trials, that's really hard to do. It's really hard to think that way. So how are we to survive during these times of hardship? Well, James turns his attention to that in sentences 5 to 8. Let me read it for you. This point here is called the giver of wisdom. It says this, sentence 5. If, anyone, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubt is like, doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's, double-minded, he's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, uh, I'm not sure what you're like when you have faced trials, but we can often feel like that um, we hate what's going on, that we want out of this trial, we want out of this suffering. We can often turn to like, oh, I don't want to see anyone, I don't like anyone, um, it's all their fault, just leave me alone, I want nothing to do with God or his people. We can often feel like that, that's understandable. During intense times of pain, we can, that can be our emotion, our feeling. And I think often we can lose our bearings, our perspective of what is going on. It can all feel like it's too much and we don't know where to turn to to stop the pain, so we just lash out at everybody. And it's impossible to see how this trial or suffering that we're experiencing is capable of producing anything good. And so we need help to see. We need perspective. So what does James say? He says, ask for wisdom. Ask for wisdom. Ask for divine help during these trials. Ask for God's perspective. Ask, he says. But that's not easy. I can remember um, five years ago, about five years ago, when I was lying in RPA hospital, in a hospital bed, and my legs weren't working because I had Gillian Barre. I wasn't sure I was going to survive, I was going to die, I was going to ever walk again. I can remember being there, lying there, feeling so alone, having a Bible sitting next to me, and I didn't want to touch it or even open it or look into it, and I found it even hard to say anything to God in prayer, to ask for help. And James knows this. He knows our experience of suffering. He's been there himself. And so after James says, uh, ask God for wisdom, he then reminds us of the one whom we're asking wisdom from. He reminds us of what God is like and he shows us just how beautifully God responds to our request for help. I have three, three great kids and uh, as they're growing up, I, I'm starting to see they are like me when I was a child. It's good and bad. Um, <laughs> uh, growing up, I, uh, my mum was the one who called the shots in my family. Uh, she was the boss, and if you didn't know that, she would tell you she was a boss. And uh, she, uh, she, had a, she had a hard life growing up. She was, had a really hard first marriage, and she had a hard, a hard childhood too. So she had a lot of hurt and anger and bitterness in her soul. And she loved being a mum, and she was the sort of person who showed you uh, her love by what she did for you. So she was always so busy, always doing things, always stressed, always just seemed on edge. Whereas my dad... He was just chilled out, laid back, nothing faced that guy at all, just moved really slowly and uh, always quite up and happy. So whenever I wanted something from a parent, from one of my parents, or I had to ask them something, who was I going to? Always to my dad. Like he was the guy, he'd always say yes, and yes to everything and always really chilled out because I went to my mum and asked her for something. She would say, no, I'm too busy, too stressed, have no time. Whereas he's like, no, nah, whatever, I'll do it for you. And it was great. The other day, I saw this in my kids, trying to choose who they'd ask. 
And so Sav comes to me and goes, hey, Dad, can I have a lolly for breakfast? I'm like, nah, no way. <laughs> Not going to happen, Sav. And then I hear a little footstep in the hallway. Hey, Mum, can I have some lollies for breakfast? And uh, thankfully, Katie said no. And, uh, uh, but I can see this, starting to figure out who to ask as, uh, as parents, who's going to be the easy one to say yes. Because I think as we understand, uh, they understand what, they, what, our, what their, uh, their parents are like, they'll go to that person and ask them for stuff. You know, during, I think what James is trying to do here for us here is he's going to show us who God is, and so we, will, we'll, we are more likely to run to him in light of his character. He wants to give us things. James wants us to know the one whom we're asking for wisdom. And I think this is super important in times of trials and suffering that we know who God is and what he is like. See so what James says, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. What is he like? Well, he is he who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. James says, ask. It's like this, almost like this childlike faith. Just ask. Ask God. What is he like? He says he is generous. He's not tight-fisted with wisdom. He gives freely. He gives lavishly. He gives help when he's asked. And James says he gives to all, all who ask. His wisdom and his help are not for those who are super godly or super killing it in their Christian life. He gives to all who asks. And it's to be enjoyed by all. You know, if you belong to God, you have access to his wisdom. And he's saying to me, come. Come to me. And James says that he gives to it, gives uh, a wisdom and help without reproach. That is, without finding fault. When you, when you come to God in the middle of your trials, maybe like me, the only words you can utter out of your mouth is, God, just help. I don't know what to pray for, but just help. When you say it to God, God is not going to say, wrong prayer, no thanks, you've got it wrong there. Or, you've really messed up this time, I'll help you out maybe. Or, what's taking you so long, don't waste my time. That's not the God of the Bible. That is not the God that James is, is talking about here. What you will see is, God say to you is, here's my wisdom, here's my help, and it's good to have you back in the game. I'm so glad you're asking me for help. I love it when you ask for wisdom. God is saying it's never too late. And be assured that it's my will that you are wise. But it's my will that you have my help. And if you can be confident about this, because God is generous and he loves to answer these prayers. That is what God is like. And again, I think it's so key in times of trial and suffering that we make sure we know who God is and not let our experience of our suffering uh, shape who we think God is. So for example, like, when we're suffering, we find life hard. We just think, well, God is, God is bringing this on me. Therefore, he's a mean taskmaster who hates me and wants nothing to do with me. So we run away from him. Rather than remembering in our minds, not letting our feelings affect our understanding of God, we remember who he is, as he revealed himself in his word, and as he revealed himself in the gospel, that he is a loving, kind father who loves us so much that he gave us his son. I love what Romans 8.32 does for us. Have a good this. Speaking of God, the He, so God, He, who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how we not also, 
with Him graciously give us all things. Paul's argument here is, if God has done the biggest thing, giving us His Son, He's done the greatest thing, why won't He give us then everything else? God loves to provide for His children. He's purchased you, redeemed you by the blood of His Son, His very Son. How will He give you all things in good times and in suffering and trials to look after you? Once we are His children, His love doesn't stop. It continues to flow to us. We're to ask Him for help and wisdom in our trials. But in the back end of it, James warns that when we ask, we're to ask the right way. And he says, without doubting. Now we need to know that when James uses the word doubting here, he's not talking in terms of knowledge or certainty. Because I'm sure, if you're like anything like me, during times of suffering or trials, doubts do raise up in our mind. Is God good? Does he love me? Why is he doing this? Now these are not the doubts that James is talking about. Because he just said that God is generous and he'll give to, uh, give to those without reproach, all who ask. James uses doubt here to talk about someone who has split loyalties, double-minded, as he says in sentence 8. In other words, the doubt, as James is speaking about, is someone who wants to sort of hedge their bets, a bit with God, a bit with everybody else, or the, the, the wisdom of the world. And they'll ask God for wisdom, but also look over their shoulder and see if they can work things out themselves or get other people to figure them out for them, what their issues are. And James says these are doubters who are unstable, have a foot in both worlds. And his warning here is those people will be tossed around and they will not receive the wisdom or help from God. So it's coming to God with a genuine asking, saying, I need you, I just need you to help. That's what James is saying here. We see that God promises to love and provide for his children now and for eternity. And the big question James is going to ask is, do we trust his love even in trials and hardship? He calls us to ask for wisdom for help and not have a divided loyalty. And he promises to provide because he's a generous God. James is helping us to have a faith that enables us to, to endure trials with joy. Finally, he goes to the last help and that is have a gospel perspective. I want to show you this in sentences 9 to 11. Let me read it. It says this, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers fall, its beauty perishes. So also with, with the rich man, uh, so, so, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. They could read this and go, hang on, were we just talking about trials and suffering? Now we're talking about money and, and rich people and what, what's James doing here? Now remember, the context of this letter is that there, in James's church, there is issues of poverty and, and financial pressures. And I'm sure you know the stress of financial pressures. When the bills are bigger than the pay packet, when you feel like a failure because you can't provide for your family, feeling like you've been left behind because others are buying homes and you're still renting, there can be resentment and anger and self-pity, and they are trials, James says here. And our culture often sees wealth as a sign of success and power and prestige, and not having a lot can be seen as a failure or a laziness or a weakness. 
Now, this is not the case, and James sees this is not the case. He wants to flip this whole thing on its head. And here is James's point. He's saying we need to have a gospel perspective. Our position before God completely trumps our position in the world, is what he's saying. He says, think rightly about having a lot or having a little. Have a gospel perspective. He says, let those who have little boast in their exaltation. How? He's saying to those who are looked down upon by the world for not having a lot, he says, don't live in shame. Don't let that define who you are. He said, instead, know who you are in Christ. You you are commanded by God to walk with your head held high and a decent sense of pride because you are a brother or sister of the risen Lord Jesus. You are a child of the King who says there is an inheritance in heaven waiting for you that will never spoil, perish, or fade. That's what defines you. And James wants us to remember, wants to remind us of not of our earthly circumstances, but our spiritual circumstances, who we are. Like, um, like that famous hymn, It Is Well, which says, you know, when all, when all earthly things go wrong, when Satan should buffet, though trial shall come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless state and shed his own blood for my soul. And because of Jesus, we can sing at any season of life, it is well. Because I'm forever loved by God, it is well. Because I'm forever accepted by my Creator, it is well. Because I'm an heir of God inheriting all things, I can sing and say in whatever season, it is well. And that's how followers of Jesus have endured throughout history. You read any biographies of famous Christian people, the Apostle Paul even, Elizabeth Elliot, Horatio Spafford, who wrote that It Is Well hymn, Corrie Ten Boom, Adoniram Judson, last week, Graham and Sarah Edwards. How have they endured? They have a gospel perspective. Why are they going to Ireland? A gospel perspective. It doesn't mean that suffering stops being suffering or hard things become easy, but it's how we can get through and consider trials as joy. A greater perspective. That's what James is saying here. But again, the flip side, he gives you a warning. James says the rich take pride in their humiliation. James is saying here the rich are to be humbled by their temporary grasp on life. He says, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers fall and its beauties perish. Then he says, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Those who pursue this will fade away. James has a warning here, I think, for us, because most of us here will fit in this category of rich living in Australia. And he's saying, seek riches in the gospel. He's saying, despite all, all our wealth and money and stuff, they will all fade. They will all rot. They will all count for nothing. Uh, Job 1 says, naked I come into this world and naked will I depart. I can bring nothing with me. And no matter who you are, we are all really desperate and needy. Before God, we are all beggars. We will all die. We are all fragile. We are all in need. But the great news of Jesus is that he came for the poor beggars in need, which is us, and gave his life for us. So whether rich or poor, James is saying, view yourself with a gospel perspective, 
know the biggest story you're a part of. Eyes are on eternity in all seasons of life, especially during trials. James 1 says, consider all, all trials when they happen as joy. Because we can do this as we have the goal of maturity in sight. When we ask God for help and for wisdom, when we have a gospel perspective. I just want to encourage you as you leave here, as you ponder James 1, whether you're in the midst of trials or soon you'll face them, I want to encourage you to remember these words of James and know they're from a good father who loves you deeply, who knows what your life is like and who loves you. And he knows, he knows this world. We have Jesus, God in the flesh, who walked in our shoes and who suffered just like us in every way. We need to turn to him for help, for wisdom, for perseverance, for strength to keep going. And when it seems like when all our earth is giving way and all our world is falling apart, you turn to him as our rock, as the one who will not fall apart. He's near, he is present, and he longs to help us. We have a heavenly dad who is for us and on our side. Let's cling to him. Let me pray for us. Father, you are good. And that is hard to say. In trials and suffering, it's hard to believe in trials and suffering. So I just want to right now pray for anyone here who is finding life hard. You say in James 1, trials of various kinds. We could be experiencing trials of many kinds, whether it's financial, relational, our own mental health battles, what to do with work, family struggles, what to do with our life. We're spiritual battles. We, we, we want more of you. We just don't know how to get it. We feel guilt. We feel shame. Whatever those trials are, Father, we just want to ask for the people that are feeling this right now that you bring healing and more important that you bring maturity through them. But we, will, we will consider and think rightly about our, about our lives, about these struggles, we would fix our eyes on you and have a gospel perspective knowing the best is yet to come there's more to come knowing that we are so loved by you that we've been given that inheritance that will never spoil, perish or fade we're going to take these, these truths up as armor for our feelings when we feel like walking away I want to pray for us who aren't in that season of trials yet who maybe even fear trials and fear what, it, what might happen. We want to ask, Father, that these truths that we hear of you, of your character, would stay strong, would stand firm when the rubber hits the road. It would cling to you as our only hope. And there will be a church who remind each other in trials of your goodness. That we would, we would be people who love as an expression of your love. So I want to thank you for the book of James. I want to pray for our series with you and bless it and that we will grow in a deeper love of you because of it. I want to thank you for all these things in Jesus' name.
time to reflect what God has said to you, then we'll stand and sing.